Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We read this morning from Matthew 14, Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. This is God's word. Go ahead, you may be seated. Well, where we're at in Matthew, we're in this next narrative section uh, where the plot line advances. Uh, We saw Jesus' uh, last discourse in Matthew 13, where he's teaching about the coming of the kingdom in parables. What's that going to look like now that that he's been rejected by his generation of Israel? And what we said last week is one of the things Matthew is doing in this next narrative section is he's, he's kind of panning the camera. If you think about the camera angle and the camera focus, he's panning the camera onto different groups. So the first group at the end of chapter 13 that he draws our attention to is the Nazarenes, to those in Jesus' hometown, those who know his family, those who know him and his uh, brothers and sisters, his mom, Joseph. They know his role, his social standing, and remember their response. And that's what Matthew's drawing his attention to is these different groups, but their response to who Jesus is. And the Nazarenes, they know he's doing miracles, They and they also see his teaching but they essentially reject him because they're familiar with him. This, can't, uh, th- this guy's a, a young upstart. He has nothing to teach us. And so there's that sort of rejection. And then last week, uh, Matthew panned the, the camera onto Herod. And Herod, uh, this, this kind of ruler un- under Rome over the section of Galilee and over the section of Perea where John and Jesus had been ministering, Uh, We see Herod's response to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. And because of Herod's fear, his uh, self-protection, he's trying to preserve his own rule, he completely misses Jesus because of his fear. Uh, We talked about that last week and his focus on John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And so there's a sort of rejection and missing uh, Jesus there as well. And now we come, in the next couple weeks, we're going to see a couple events, a couple great miracles and signs that Jesus is going to do, but really the primary group that's involved here is the disciples, the disciples. 
Um, remember, we've, we've kind of talked in terms of the disciples on one end of the spectrum, those who have repented and entrusted themselves to Jesus, and they're following Jesus. And then you've got those who are opposed. Um, you've got the Pharisees and the scribes, and now you kind of see that list being added onto. And then you've got the crowds in the middle, uncommitted, interested in Jesus, but not repenting. So, uh, but what we're interested in and what Matthew's doing for us is he's panning the camera and saying, okay, where's everyone at? How is everyone responding to who Jesus is? And here we begin to see a little bit more about how the disciples are responding at this point. And this will culminate in Matthew 16 in Jesus confession, or Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. So there's kind of a building to that moment. So what do we see in this section? What do we see in this section? Well, we see, as it starts out in verses 13, we see it pick up right after the last section. So remember how the last section ended. John the Baptist has been beheaded at this feast that Herod, the pretender, the false king, has given. John gets beheaded, and his disciples come, and they talk to Jesus. That's how this section starts off with. It docks with the last section. And the main idea for this section is this. Look to Jesus, the true and compassionate king, for divine resources to show compassion. Look to Jesus, the true and compassionate king, for divine resources to show compassion. Let's pick it up in verse 13. And we're going to see this in just the first couple verses, that Jesus, the true king, is compassionate. Jesus, the true king, is compassionate. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, so was he heard? He's heard about John's beheading. And what happens here is, as you notice, uh, that him hearing about John's beheading frames what he does next. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there. He's probably not in Nazareth at this point. Uh, there's actually a difference in time between where 14.1 starts, which is right after Nazareth, and then Jesus hearing the report about John. So he's probably in Capernaum again, probably. So he hears this. He hears about John's beheading, and he withdraws. He withdraws from where he is in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now, a desolate place doesn't necessarily mean a desert. It just means that it's a place with no people. But why? Uh, why does he do this? Well, when he hears about John, this motivates, that's the way it's framed in the text, it's motivating his action of withdrawal. Now, you actually see this language of withdrawal a couple other times in the text. Uh, earlier on, actually right after John was arrested to begin with, back in chapter 4, that same sort of language of he withdrew is used. And the idea is, or it seems to be, that part of this withdrawal is motivated by, um, by avoiding danger, by avoiding danger. Um, Jesus' time isn't yet, and so he's strategically withdrawing for a time. But it seems to be a little bit more than that, because as we look later on, after he finally gets to do what he wants to do in this withdrawal, he, if we jump down to, say, uh, 1423, when he finally gets to do what he wants to do in this withdrawal, we see him doing this. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountains by himself to pray. So some of this withdrawal seems to be that, uh, yes, he's withdrawing himself from danger. Uh, Herod thinks he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, so he, um, he's probably gunning for Jesus in that sense. And yet, uh, there's also this aspect of 
what John's pivotal role in the work of redemption. We talked about this last week. We've talked about it multiple times, and it's something we don't often think about, but remember how Jesus talked about John back in chapter 11. He is a prophet, uh, and he's the greatest of all who have been born. Why? Because if you receive the message of repentance that John preached and that Jesus preached, he is the Elijah who's supposed to come before the day of the Lord, before the judgment, before the establishment of God's kingdom. Well, what we said last week is with John's beheading, with his destruction, it shows that that generation didn't repent, didn't respond. We've seen that. And it's a foreshadowing. If, if the forerunner of the Messiah is killed and beheaded, well, what's going to happen to the Messiah himself? And so now things, uh, it's, it's an irrevocable thing that's happened. John's dead. It's, it's, he's not the Elijah who is to come, not in the sense of, uh, turn, uh, g- gathering this repentance from all Israel so that all Israel might repent and be saved and the kingdom might come. And so with the beheading of John, Jesus withdraws, yes, to avoid danger, unnecessary danger, but also to pray to the Father about this pivotal event that now it's inevitable. The cross is inevitable. And so he's praying and meditating about that. So that's why he wants to go to a desolate place. He wants to go by himself. Now, literally, it's just the idea of privately. Now, we, privately doesn't mean he's alone. Uh, we can see that the disciples are with him. But he wants to go just with his disciples to a desolate place to, yes, withdraw from the danger, but also to think about what's coming and to pray to the Father about what's coming. But we see this. When the crowds heard it, They followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, now where did they end up? Uh, uh, We have the other gospel accounts that can help us piece together the geography. Probably Jesus left the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I guess for you guys it would be over here. Um, They left the western shore, and then probably where he ends up is a place called Bethsaida, out of Herod's territory on the eastern shore, in the northeastern shore. That's probably the best guess of where he is. It doesn't really matter for Matthew's purposes. He just wants you to know it's a desolate place, and yet the crowds, uh, the word passes around that this is where Jesus is going. The crowds hear about it, and they follow him on foot from the towns. The idea is that they uh, work fast, they move fast, and evidently they get there before the boat lands, because we see in verse 14... When he went ashore, or when he got out, he gets out of the boat, he saw a great crowd. Now, imagine the picture, right? Uh, Your colleague, your foremost colleague in ministry just got beheaded, and you want to get off and be alone. And so you're sailing over to this shore, and you're drawing near the shore, and you start to make out people on this shore, and then you land, and you get out, and there's all these people like, this is the exact opposite of what I was intending. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus was intending. And so how would you respond in that situation? I'd be annoyed. Uh, I want to be alone. I need some me time. I need to be alone. But what do we see here and what do we see in Jesus' response? He sees the great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Uh, This word for compassion, it's that gut-level compassion. We've talked about this before because we've seen it before in the book of Matthew. This is a gut-level compassion. Jesus is moved by the crowds that he sees. He's not annoyed. 
he is moved by them, and he heals them. Why are the crowds coming? It seems like the crowds are still coming primarily for the side benefits of Jesus. He does these great miracles. He does all this healing. He can help us out. So we're really interested in Jesus. That seems to be the crowd's motivation. And Jesus knows this, right? We've seen him address this generation is not repenting. They're not receiving so not only is it this upset his plans, um, at least as they're laid out, his primary intention, but they're from people that really aren't committed to him. And yet he has compassion. He has compassion. The same kind of basic uh, thing you see in Matt, back in Matthew 9. Turn back to Matthew 9 just to see that same response, the same basic response earlier on. Matthew 9 35 and 36 says this, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So the same thing happens. He's going all over, he's teaching, and he's healing. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Why was he compassionate in chapter 9? Well, it's because he sees these people, these crowds, they're, they're not being shepherded. And we talked about that back then. They're not being led by the scribes and the Pharisees, those who should be leading them to the truth, those who should be leading them. Guys like Herod, who are supposed to be over them and think of themselves as king, and yet they are not shepherding the crowds. They're not shepherding the people as God would have them. And so the compassion that Jesus shows here, he sh- you see it again, right? He shows them compassion and he heals. Same basic things he did in chapter 9. It's the compassion of the true king. What did we just last see in the last section? We saw this, this, uh, this would-be king, this false king, manipulated by his wife, uh, and thinking he's powerful when he's really not. He's just really cowardly in a lot of ways and driven by his own self-preservation, driven by his own lusts. And in comparison, we see the true king showing compassion on his people, even when they are not not as they ought to be, right? These crowds, they're coming for the benefits, they're coming for the healing, and yet Jesus still sees them as sheep without a shepherd. They They need to repent, they need true leadership, and he has compassion on them. He heals their maladies. And this is where you need to pause. One of, the things you, one of the things the Gospels are supposed to do for us, really the primary thing the Gospels are supposed to do for us, is show us who Jesus is in all of his character, all of the facets of his character. And so we see different aspects of that. We see Jesus, he is uh, the powerful and true king, and we see his demands, don't we? We've seen a lot of that through the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen, uh, think of the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom righteousness that Jesus demands of his followers. He uh, talks about following him even above family. I mean, he's talked a lot about that. And so we see those aspects where it's like, wow, that's, that's huge demands. And sometimes we might get in our mind this kind of picture of Jesus as a taskmaster, as a harsh sort of ruler. And yet, we see also, that's not all of what Jesus is doing. He, we also see his compassion. We see his compassion, his kindness, his mercy. Yes, is he firm? Does he have demands for the world and for his followers? Absolutely. And yet it's not the demands of someone like Herod 
It's the demands of a servant-hearted and compassionate and merciful king, a good king, a true king, who really does care for his people. Think about it like this, too. We know that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, that here is what God is like. If you want to uh, Jesus says elsewhere in John, if you want to see me, if you see me, you've seen the Father. You see what I'm doing. You see my character. You see what God is like. And so we see compassion, God's compassion, Jesus' compassion, and on people who don't really deserve it, who are thwarting what Jesus wanted to do, but he doesn't, he doesn't belabor that. He, he meets their needs. He sees what they need, and even people who aren't responding to him the way he wants, he still has that heart of compassion. We need to see Jesus as compassionate, God as compassionate to sinners, even to those who do not deserve it. And that's our only hope as people, because if God had no compassion, if Jesus had no compassion, there we would not survive his wrath. We need to see Jesus as compassionate, but then also by extension, what, did, what was Jesus' ministry about? Well, he calls disciples, he calls for repentance and faith and following, and then what does he call his disciples to? To be fishers of people and to demonstrate the same kind of compassion and teaching that he himself is doing. So not only is Jesus compassionate, but as disciples, we ought to be compassionate. We ought to have the same compassion for others. We need to see people not as burdens or as blockades to our own desires, but just like Jesus here, he is compassionate. He seeks to do what's best for them, even when it conflicts with the path he was originally going to take. Jesus is compassionate, and we need to have that same compassion for others. So that's the first thing we see in these first couple verses, is that Jesus, the true king, unlike Herod, is compassionate. Second, we see this, that Jesus, the true king, has divine resources. Jesus, the true king, has divine resources. We see this in verses 15 through 21. So we get a transition here. So he sees the crowd, he's healing them. This takes some time, and then uh, we see a development in verse 15. Now when it was evening, okay, so it's getting on towards sunset, it's getting late, the disciples came to him. So the disciples approach him, and they say this, this is a desolate place. So that's the second time that's been mentioned. They're in a desolate place. It's not a desert place because we see later it has grass. So you don't have grass in a desert place. But there's not a lot of people around, right? Except this crowd. There's all this crowd around. It's a desolate place. And the day is now over. It's literally the, the hour has already passed by. Meaning it's getting late, Jesus. It's getting really late. Could be that he's talking about um, the hour for the evening meal has passed by. But it's just the idea that it's getting late. So because of those two facts, this is a desolate place, and it's getting late, what do the disciples come up with that they should do? Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now let's think about that for a minute. 
Sometimes um, people or commentators that I read this week, they're kind of harsh on the disciples. They're like, ah, they just want to get the crowds out of there um, so that they can be by themselves with Jesus. Maybe, but let's think about this, right? You've got this crowd and Jesus has been healing them. He's been teaching them. He's been doing all this stuff, but the disciples note something. Okay, this is a desolate place um, and the hour's late. Uh, These people are going to be hungry Uh, They need food. We need to tend to their needs. I don't think this is a bad motivation. In fact, it seems like a pretty logical course of action. Jesus, um, we should probably send these people away now so that they can get some food and um, be, uh, be nourished. That in and of itself is a sort of compassion that's demonstrated, isn't it? Uh, These people need some food. They need to be tended to. So why don't we send them away so that they can do that. Um, I don't think it's a negative thing that the disciples are doing. It seems like a reasonable thing, and it seems even driven by compassion in a sense. But then we get this interchange between Jesus and the disciples, and what this interchange shows us, because it's focusing on Jesus' relationship with the disciples, it shows that what he's about to say and what he's about to do is primarily for the disciples. You'll see that as we walk through that. How does Jesus respond? Verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So Jesus is saying, all right, they don't, you're concerned about them being fed and nourished. Okay, they don't need to go away for that. Here's my solution. My solution is this. You give them something to eat. And it's actually emphatic in the original. It's like pointing their, his finger in their chest and saying, you guys, that's my solution for not sending the crowds away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Now, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? Well, let's see how the disciples respond. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And again, it's kind of highlighted in the original. That this is, they're kind of surprised, right? Like, what? We only got five loaves and two fish. What are they doing? They're saying, all right, Jesus is calling us to feed this crowd. He's commanding us. It is a command. You give them something to eat. All right, if we're to fulfill that command, then, uh, well, let's look at our resources. What do we have for resources? We have five loaves and two fish. Now, these loaves, uh, these are like pita, pita loaves. So I don't know if you've ever gone to the pita pit or something like that, or you've had a pita or maybe something like that. We're talking kind of small, right? Five loaves and two fish, it's probably enough maybe for a person. Actually, I think it's John that says that it came from a child. So this is like a child's portion, okay? So they're like, we got nothing. The only thing we have is this. And what does Jesus say? Verse 18, and he said, bring them here to me. We don't have anything here, Jesus, except five loaves and two fish. What is Jesus responsible? Bring them here to me. Now, again, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? Now, Jesus probably knows they don't have the bread and the the food that they would need to fill this crowd. He probably knows that. So what is he doing by telling them, commanding them to feed the crowd? It's a test. It's a test. Because where does he ultimately go with it What are the disciples ultimately supposed to do? We see it in verse 18. They're supposed to bring it back to Jesus. 
In other words, the proper response from the disciples would have been, Jesus, we don't have, we have five loaves and two fish. That's all we have. But given who you are and who we've seen you to be, we can't do it. So we're going to just, we, we have to look to you to fulfill this need. Help us to fulfill this command. Allow us to do this. They're supposed to come to him and to look to him. Sometimes people say, um, I don't know if you've heard this, you've probably heard it, I've heard it multiple times, God won't give you anything more than you can handle. Of course he will. He does it all the time. If you're looking only to your own resources, then of course he's going to command you to do something beyond your resources. But the point of doing that is not for you to despair and look to yourself. The point is to look to him, and in this case, to Jesus' divine resources. God will, of course, ask you to do more than you can do. Of course he will, on your own. So what happens? He says, bring the mirror to me, verse 19, and then we kind of see how this works out. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Now, pause right there. That language of ordering, the last time we saw that same word was when Herod ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. This word for reclining, the language that's being used here, it's kind of like reclining at a formal banquet. So Jesus is basically setting this up as, this is kind of like a formal banquet, and he's setting himself up as the king who's giving commands to the crowds, and he's giving the crowds a banquet. Kind of like Herod the king just gave a birthday banquet, but that time, that banquet was a banquet of death. But what is the true king doing? What we're going to see is he's going to give a banquet of life. He orders the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Now, actually, in the original, the main verb is he said a blessing. So everything else, uh, ordering the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the loaves and looking up into heaven, all of that is kind of accentuates this main verb of blessing. The main verb is he blessed. What did he bless? What's he doing? What's a blessing? Now, we kind of just pass over that language, and it could be that he's just saying the blessing like the Jews did at the beginning of a meal. They did that regularly, and that blessing was a praise to God for his provision. No doubt part of that is here, but what is a blessing? The idea of a blessing is calling on God, invoking God for divine favor. That's why he looks up into the sky. It's a, it's a movement, a physical movement to show dependence on God to act. In other words, Jesus is going to call on divine resources to make this happen. And after breaking, after breaking this bread... After saying this blessing, he's calling on God for divine resources. Then he broke the loaves. Now notice the fish just disappeared, right? He broke the loaves. So maybe the fish don't get distributed. I don't know, but the focus is on the loaves. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Who is feeding the crowds? The disciples are feeding the crowds, aren't they? In other words, what Jesus commanded them to do, you feed them, 
they are now able to do. Why? Because Jesus has intervened for divine favor, and he's getting the bread, and he's passing it along to the disciples, and they are able to do what Jesus commanded them to do. They all ate and were satisfied, and they, and the they there is probably the disciples, took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. I don't know how much you know about physics, but there's this idea of the conservation of mass. Mass is neither created nor destroyed. Well, unless you're God. And that's what's going on here, right? The mass of food, 12 baskets full, we don't know exactly how big these baskets are, right? But it's pretty clear that the mass of food that they ended with, and after feeding everyone to where they were satisfied, meaning, no, 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 I I can't have any more, I'm stuffed. The mass of food they left over with was greater than what they started with. The only way you can do that is if you're the creator or have access to divine resources, which is exactly what Jesus did. He called upon God, he invoked the Father for blessing, for divine resources to make this happen. And it's accentuated another way, verses 20, verse 21, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Uh, usually, if you look at the scriptures, that's how the scriptures number people. They usually count the men, and they say, yeah, there were women and children besides that. So if we estimate this, and you hear people estimate this number all the time, it's probably around 10,000 people total. That's a lot of people, right? And it's another way. These 10,000-ish people were satisfied to the full. They had what they needed. So again, it's just accentuating. This is a big deal. This is a massive creation-level miracle at the hands of the true king, giving life to and showing compassion in this way, too, to the people. But again, what is this here for? It's here for the disciples, It's not even clear whether the crowd actually knows where the bread came from. I mean, maybe maybe they knew, maybe some of them knew, but Matthew's focus is not on the crowd seeing this great sign and miracle. Matthew's focus is for the disciples because he commanded them, you give them something to eat, and they did by means of looking to Jesus for divine resources, and that's the lesson he's teaching them. Do the disciples fully get who Jesus is? No, not yet. And he's teaching them. He's teaching them more about who he is, and in their ministry, remember, even even it seems like the disciples' suggestion, let's feed these people, or let's send them away to go get fed, even that is kind of born out of compassion, and we know they're to be to, to extend Jesus' ministry and to show compassion like he's showing compassion. Well, how are you going to show compassion to people only through looking to Jesus who has divine resources. And, part, and this is coupled with who do you see Jesus is? Who do you see Jesus is? They don't fully get it yet. They're learning, and Jesus is teaching them. There's a couple more aspects and things to note about this story. Remember, Matthew emphasized that they're in a desolate place. They're in a desolate place. doesn't mean a desert, But you ever heard of something in the Bible where a lot of people are in a desolate place and they get fed with a lot of bread? Yeah, it's called like the Exodus, right? And manna coming from where? From heaven. And God feeding his people, even when they certainly didn't deserve it. 
and yet he had compassion on them as the creator and as their king. There's also another episode in the scriptures that, is, uh, that this alludes to, and that is in 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. You can turn there if you want. Don't know the last time you were in 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. If you've been tracking with our reading plan as a church through the scriptures, you read it not too long ago. But let me frame the situation a little bit. So uh, at the end of 1 Kings, you have the fellow Elijah, this great prophet who is supposed to bring uh, repentance to Israel, and he fails, or at least he seemingly fails, and then God commissions his, his, the one coming after him, the prophet coming after him, and he gives him a double spirit and after Elijah, and that prophet's name is Elisha, Elisha. And what happens in the early chapters of 2 Kings is Elisha is, um, it's being displayed that he has a, a great deal more power than Elisha even had. And the purpose of that power and the purpose of the signs is to confirm the message that Elisha was bringing. Well, we see one of those in 2 Kings 4, 42. Listen to this. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, this is Elisha, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. That sound kind of familiar? But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of Yahweh. And so that miracle in that instance was showing Elisha, who followed Elijah, had more power, and that power was for the purpose of establishing that he's a prophet, he speaks the word of the Lord. But you can see here, this is similar, and in fact, it seems like what Jesus does in the feeding of the 5,000 alludes back to that. But why? Well, a couple things to note. One is of a greater significance than the other, right? The one guy has 20 loaves and he feeds 100 guys. Jesus has like five loaves and two fish, like enough for a child, maybe a person, and he feeds 10,000 people. So what's the point, right? Elisha was greater than Elijah. And where did we see this connection between Elijah, someone in Matthew? Oh, uh, John the Baptist, that's right. And so what we see is Jesus is the supreme one. He's supreme to John the Baptist. He's supreme to Elisha. He's supreme to Elijah. Again, it's emphasizing who is Jesus. He is the true king. He has divine resources. He's greater than any prophet was or has been, including John himself. Again, it's all about seeing who Jesus actually is as a disciple and then looking to him as the true king with divine resources. One other thing to note before we move on from this section, did you hear that language of uh, taking loaves and blessing and breaking and giving? Does that sound kind of familiar? Well, you'll see those exact same words again in the Last Supper. Exact same um, words. What we're not supposed to do is necessarily look forward to the Last Supper, but when we get to the Last Supper, which we will in several months, um, 
we will, I will remind you at that point, so I'm just telling you to tuck it in your back pocket for now, but when we get to that portion, it'll be the same verbs that Jesus is using to picture giving bread, give, instituting the Lord's Supper for his disciples. What's the connection? I'll just drop briefly here. We see Jesus with creation power, with divine resources, showing compassion on the crowd. And what Jesus is doing and why there's a callback is that through Jesus' death, that's the ultimate show of compassion to the world in giving of himself, far more than just satisfying people's hunger, but satisfying their souls. So just tuck that one in your back pocket until we get to the, the Last Supper. Here, what's the emphasis? You need to see who Jesus is. You need to see that he has divine resources. You need to see that Jesus is the king with awesome divine resources. This is one of, it's kind of an understated miracle. I mean, we don't really actually think of the feeding of the 5,000. It's like, oh, it's just multiplication of bread. It kind of seems like an understated miracle. But when you think about what's going on, and it's like, hey, wait a minute, conservation of mass, this doesn't work unless you're the creator and have creative power. It is astounding and shows Jesus as the king with awesome divine resources. And so we've already talked a little bit about, well, okay, what does that mean for us? Well, it's the same thing there for the disciples. Jesus does call on us as his disciples to do what we do not have the resources to do on our own. He does it quite frequently. Why? Well, because, as in this situation, God calls us to do things that we cannot do on our own, that are beyond our resources, to look to him so that when he supplies those resources as a good father and as a good king, he gets all the glory and he gets all the credit, which is exactly what's going on. It draws attention here to Jesus and to who he is and to his resources. So we encounter that in multiple ways in our Christian lives. And as we encounter these various ways in which we are called to do what we cannot do, we need to look to Jesus and his resources to do what he wants you and I to do. Let's start with the gospel itself. We talk about initial repentance. You don't have the resources to be righteous. No one does. Everyone is born a sinner who deserves God's wrath, who is an enemy of God, who is an enemy of Christ. And we think, we often tend to think, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm not so bad, and my good deeds outweigh my bad, so God will accept me. God will be okay with me. God demands perfect righteousness. If you want to stand in the presence of the perfect one, then you need perfect righteousness. No one has those resources except Jesus who became a man, lived the perfect, lived-in-flesh human righteousness that you and I could not have, died on the cross in place of his people for their judgment, for the wrath that was due them, he took that in their place, and also had the perfect, lived-in-flesh righteousness that they didn't have so that that can be credited to them so that they can draw near to God. So when you come to faith in Jesus, what you need to do is to acknowledge I don't have the righteousness that God demands of me. I cannot. I have no resources in myself to do so. I repent. I lay down arms of being an enemy against Jesus, an enemy against God, of looking to myself, of ruling my own life. And I look to Jesus as the true and compassionate king who through his compassion gave himself up 
through death and resurrection to rescue his people. So even this principle is at work in the gospel. And then who does Jesus call his disciples to be as they become his disciples, as they follow him? He calls them to be fishers of people, meaning, okay, the compassion you have now received from the king of kings, now you need to bend that out to others in proclaiming the gospel to others. So I don't know if you've ever um, proclaimed the gospel to others. I hope that's what we're called to do. That's our mission. But have you ever been in a situation where you're proclaiming the gospel to someone else? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone you met on the street. doesn't matter. And you're, you're proclaiming the truth of Scripture, and you're just like, it's like just the truth is just bouncing off like concrete, right, from this person. Well, what's going on there is the reality that God calls us to proclaim the gospel. Jesus calls us to proclaim the gospel. We can be as faithful in that as we ought to be, and yet nothing's going to happen without, the, without divine intervention, without divine resources, because I can't change anyone's heart. I'm still called to proclaim the truth, but I can't change anyone's heart. We need the divine resources of Jesus, the resources of his spirit to change someone else's heart. So as we fulfill our primary mission in proclaiming the gospel, we're like, I can't do this. And Jesus is telling me, you share the gospel with that people. You proclaim it. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be in prayer before, during, after. Jesus, I can be faithful with words and what you've given me to, but I can't change that person unless you act. Would you bless, remember that emphasis on blessing, Jesus blessing those loaves, would you bless what I am doing and make it effective? Let's think about obedience generally. Uh, Let's talk about, uh, let's make it concrete. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I am called to love my wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. Do I have the resources in myself to do that? Absolutely not. I'm a sinful man. And what what am I supposed to do? To do as best I can what Jesus is calling me and what I can see to do, to, to aim in that direction and then to plead and pray, Jesus, I can't do it. I can't do what you're calling me to do unless you would enable me. Or wives, respect your husbands, submit to them. Same thing. Not going to happen unless you look to Jesus and to his enablement of what you're doing through his spirit in obedience. Parents, raise your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That parents, that's your primary responsibility to raise your children. You cannot farm that out to the church. You can, certainly can't farm that out to the state. Um, so you are responsible. I'm looking to this as a prospective parent, even in adoption, and I'm thinking, holy mackerel. What am I going to do? But Jesus calls me, feed that child, uh, in the sense of uh, raise that child up to know me. I can't change that child's heart. I can't make that child a believer. I can't make that child fear the Lord, and yet I'm called to do it. So what do I do? I do exactly the same thing here. I look, I do what I'm called to do as best I can, but always independence and looking to Jesus' resources to bless that and make it a reality. Singles. Let's talk about singles. We talk about husband and wives and parents. It's hard living in this world with all the sexual immorality to stay pure and to wait for your spouse, if God would so please, to give you a spouse in marriage. How are you going to do what God is calling you to do? Because it seems impossible. The deck is stacked against you only by looking 
to Jesus and his divine resources. And on and on and on and on. Any aspect of obedience is impossible for us because we are naturally sinners and can do nothing to please God apart from the blessing through Jesus to enable us to do what he is calling us to do in ministry, in life, in all of it. But Jesus is the good and compassionate king, and he will answer, and he will give us what we need to do what he is calling us to do, just like he did. You feed these people, and they did, by looking to Jesus and by depending on Jesus to do so. Look to Jesus, the true and compassionate king for divine resources to show compassion. Let's pray. Jesus, we have no resources. You say, John 15, you told the disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that is true, and we all humbly acknowledge that, that there is nothing. We don't have the righteousness to be saved, and yet you've provided it through the, your death and resurrection. We don't have the ability to obey apart from your empowerment. And Lord, when we depend upon you, when we look to you and away from our own resources, you supply what we need for your glory and for your honor as the true king. And that's what we want, Lord God. We want to see you honored. We want to see you glorified. We want to see you lifted up. Lord, Help us to keep, this is why we need prayer, Lord. Help us to keep being prayerful. If we are prayerless, it's because we're self-reliant. Help us to be prayerful, both individually and corporately. And Lord, we ask as a church, as Faith Bible Church, you've given us the call to, to proclaim the truth to our community, to uh, equip families, to, uh, do, uh, to, to be a visible body that loves one another, that's unified for your glory and honor in this community. And Lord, we cannot do it apart from your grace. And so we ask that you would bless our efforts. We want to be faithful. And yet, as we seek to be faithful in our action, help us to look to you and to you alone, our King, who will is so good and compassionate and kind and will bless as you see fit to accomplish your ends for your glory. Help us to keep looking to you as our king. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. We thank you for what you've already done, amazing things in people's lives and hearts. We praise you, and we thank you, and we pray that you would do more beyond all that we ask or think for your glory in the church and in Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen.